And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, the popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the host attend. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. And welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host, Onyx Siadian. And today's episode, we will be talking about Christianity and the nature of politics. And to help us with this topic, we have invited a guest who has been with us before on our inaugural address. And this guest is Dr. Scott Clark. Welcome back to the show, Scott. Hi, guys. Happy to be with you. Yes, welcome. I don't know if I can add any clarity, but I'll definitely add some confusion. <laughs> and some your your confusion is our clarity. Yes. Yeah, there you go. It's that? great. It's great to have you back. Great to see you. Excellent. So today we're going to talk about, of course, Christianity and politics. Uh, this seems to be a hot button issue as of late, especially with COVID and all the nonsense that's been going on. Um, so, Dr. Clark, when we talk about Christianity in politics, um, how should the church be dealing with politics and and not getting into the uh, into the fray of being political from the from the get go, especially from the pulpit? Well, let's uh, start by distinguishing between Christians and the church. So we'll, that that will help. So, uh, as I understand things. Uh, Christians live in a twofold world, right? Um, a twofold kingdom. That's uh, Calvin's language from the Institutes, and I find that I find that way of of um, of talking and analyzing things helpful. Keeps us out of out of trouble. Uh, if we make that distinction, then we can distinguish, uh, I think, helpfully between the the realms in which uh, we live and. The, the church as church, as a corporate institution, I think, has relatively little to say about um, uh, politics. Uh, I think there are some limited cases, limited instances in which the church as an institution has a right or a responsibility to speak to the magistrate, to speak to the civil order in, in extreme cases. Uh, but I don't think the church as church, as an institution, is called by God, for example, to opine on water policy, monetary policy, or any uh, number of things on which 
the visible institution has sometimes been, particularly in the modern period, been tempted to, to opine and, and interject itself. Uh, that being said, I think Christians as individuals, as private citizens, as uh, members of uh, extra-ecclesial groups, uh, sometimes called parachurch organizations, what, what have you, uh, private societies is the way that the Dutch would put it. Uh, they have a right to, to organize and to uh, participate in society, uh, to make their voices heard, uh, to analyze things, uh, to propose legislation, to advocate for, for this view or that view. Uh, and, but I would say all of that should be done uh, not under the banner necessarily of Christianity or uh, under the banner of the Bible, necessarily, obviously, as Christians, the Bible is always going to influence what we say and, and, and what we think and how we look at things, but we ought to be prepared in the secular realm, in the civil realm, judicial realm, to make arguments from nature um, rather than, say, as some have tried to do in, um, in the last 30 or 40 or 50 years, uh, rather than to make arguments from, for example, the Mosaic judicial laws which I think is not very helpful, for example, as the theonomists want to do to reimpose or seek to reimpose the uh, Mosaic judicial laws, which is something that the Reformed and the Protestants more generally have always rejected, going back to the very earliest part of the 16th century. So, uh, um, so that's how I start at this, or how I go at this. I go at it by making a distinction. All right, so uh, Dr. Clark, why are, why are some policies you mentioned are appropriate or sorry that are inappropriate for the church to opine in and uh, uh, so does that necessitate that are that there are uh, other policies that were, would be appropriate i think potentially in extreme cases um, for example particularly in in the case of religious persecution uh, should the magistrate decide that it's a good idea to start arresting christians and uh, torture them, uh, to, to uh, require them to confess something or to deny Christ, uh, to confess that Caesar is a god, uh, as happened in the you know, uh, first century AD, the second uh, through the third century AD, finally ended in the early fourth century AD in 311 with the Edict of Toleration. And then uh, Christianity was legalized under Constantine in um, 313. And made the state religion in uh, in 380 or 381, which is, in my view, that was the a step too far. But um, so we're at the case that the magistrate starts punishing Christians for being Christians. Then I think the church has a right to to uh, speak up, uh, to complain, uh, to ask for relief. And uh, of course, this is something we've always done. You can, uh, at least as individuals. I don't know that the church as church did it in the, for, for example, the second century, but Christians did. Uh, Justin Martyr uh, uh, spoke up, uh, wrote an apology, not, a, not in the sense in which we use that word apology regularly, as is, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I stepped on your toes. Uh, please, forgive me, I wasn't paying attention to what I was doing. Not, not in that sense, but apology in the sense of defense. And uh, in his apology, he did say to the magistrate, listen, well, we're not asking anything from you except please stop killing us. We'd like you to do that. And uh, we'd like to participate, I'm obviously summarizing here, paraphrasing, we'd like to participate in a Roman society uh, um, 
insofar as we can, as it is a secular matter. So uh, the, the historic Christian approach to this has always been to distinguish between the sacred and the secular. And um, uh, this is a distinction that we need to recover. It's a distinction that's been lost you know, for a lot of Christians for uh, too long, but it's, that's the traditional Christian distinction. It's one that the Reformed inherited. Um, I think the Apostle Paul makes that distinction in um, 1 Corinthians. He says, look, you can uh, you can go to a, a, a dinner with your neighbor, your pagan neighbor, um, but the minute he says, uh, which of course in the kitchen, the, the pagans uh, dedicated the meal to God, but as long as they didn't bring it out to the table and say, oh, by the way, uh, we've dedicated this meal to the gods, uh, you were free to participate in it. Mm -hmm. But the minute they make it a religious meal, well, no, you, then you have to say, I'm sorry, I, I can't participate. That's 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 10. Um, so that's a sacred secular distinction. We have a, a, a sacred meal, that's the Lord's Supper, uh, but we share uh, a secular life with the pagans, and that's what Justin said, right? And uh, you can see that in Diognetus, the treatise, the anonymous treatise to Diognetus. You know, we, we share your language, we share your clothing, we share your customs, but we don't share our wives. That's chapter five. Uh, so we are distinct from you. Uh, we're not fussy about... Uh, uh, you know, new moons and Sabbaths. Uh, uh, he doesn't say that quite, but he, that's what he's referring to when he, he distinguishes the Christians from the Jews. And we don't carry gods around in our pockets like the pagans. Um, so there are ways we're distinct and are way, ways that we are alike. And uh, so when the, when the state infringes on that, when it moves beyond the secular into the sacred and uh, seeks to uh, persecute us, then we have a right, the church has a right as church to, to speak up, but we're, we're not competent to, not called to, um, to speak to, uh, as for example, particularly the mainline churches, the seven sisters of the mainline, the, the theologically and typically culturally, politically liberal denominations, the PCUSA, the UMC, the UCC, uh, the ELCA, uh, the Episcopal Church USA, Disciples of Christ, uh, the American Baptist, those groups, uh, you know, they, they wade into cultural, political waters explicitly, giving Congress uh, unsolicited advice all the time about this policy and, and that policy. And we're simply not called to do that. Dr. Clark, there seems to be a disturbing trend where we see pastors who are political now who have never been political before and who are violating their ministerial oaths by preaching politics from the pulpit. We can see this, you know, with some big name pastors inviting uh, non-Christians who are radio show hosts to their pulpits to campaign um, from the pulpit, which is a disturbing trend. To me, it seems like there is a misunderstanding where we are only supposed to uh, preach word and sacrament from the pulpit where this other trend is starting to occur, even within some reformed settings. And can you extrapolate on that? Well, I hope that isn't happening in, in reformed, in actually in actual confessional reformed congregations. That is, those congregations that hold the, yeah, Bel right. the Belgian Confession, the Canons of Dort, the Heidelberg Catechism, the, mm -hmm. um, the Westminster Standards, those sorts of confessions. Sure. I, I would trust that's not happening. But the, the scenario you described, it, it would be, a case in which a congregation is getting involved in partisan politics, uh, picking a side in a in a 
in an election. So we're going to support party A and the candidate of party A over party B. And of course, again, the, the theological uh, left um, in the United States has been doing this for a long time. I, I remember, we maybe we all yep. should remember uh, Hillary Clinton's appalling uh, appearance in an African-American church where she quoted, a, I think, a hymn, an, an African-American hymn, um, you know, I ain't no ways tired. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure where that came from, but I remember her doing it and doing the accent, which if anyone else had done it would have been, she would have been canceled right then and there uh, for <laughs> right. appalling performance. But uh, uh, so there are people who've been doing this sort of thing uh, for a long time. And, and so now I guess the other side is doing it, uh, having political candidates in the pulpit. And my response is to say a pox on both your houses, that mm. the, the visible right. institutional church is an embassy of the kingdom of God. And uh, uh, the, as you say, we're, or, we're called and ordained by God to be preaching the law and the gospel and administering the holy sacraments and practicing church discipline um, you know, we're, uh, we're, to, we're to be making disciples, we're to be an, announcing uh, the law and the gospel. And, and uh, certainly, I don't want the listener to think by this that uh, ministers shouldn't be applying the word of God, or that the ministers uh, shouldn't be speaking to uh, cultural issues as the scriptures uh, lead us and, and as the text leads us to, to address them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I'm not saying that at all, but, but I'm talking about being involved in partisan political electioneering and in the visible church and from the pulpit or up on a platform, um, you know, behind the church's lectern, if they don't even have a pulpit or, or whatever, uh, that, that crosses a line, that, that's inappropriate, uh, that's a confusion of spheres, and that's why, again, I find Calvin's language of a twofold kingdom, where he says uh, pretty explicitly, he pretty explicitly distinguishes between the sacred and the secular, and uh, again, the, the church's uh, principal responsibility is to speak to the, the sacred and, uh, and not necessarily to speak uh, in, in that, at least not to speak to uh, civil, judicial, uh, civil, political, uh, secular issues. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that, Dr. Clark. Uh, so, Dr. Clark, going back to um, the two kingdoms. A concept that you said uh, uh, Calvin described in uh, his institutes. H- how did he formulate that? Did he look to uh, the covenant distinctives and you know the law and the promise and all the fulfillments within within um, the Abrahamic covenant and through the covenant of grace and redemption? How is the how is that two the two kingdoms formulated and how does that apply to our uh, relationship with politics? Well, um, I'm glad you asked that. I, I, while you're asking the question, I was just getting up, getting the passage here up on my screen from the, uh, I have it up on the Heidel blog, heidelblog.net. And in fact, there's a whole resource page there. <laughs> uh, so Heidel blog, if I plug the Heidel blog here. Uh, plug away. Yeah, please ring the, ring the cowbell, please. Yeah, I'm, as well. I'm, get, I'm getting there. <laughs> there we go. Um, so this is heidelblog.net and uh, slash resources. And on that resource page, one of the resource pages is on the twofold kingdom. And so that I've been using that language for quite a while now. I don't know probably 10 years, 
So I would prefer not to, I mean, I, I'm fine with two kingdoms, but I, I have been trying to use Calvin's language for probably a decade now, uh, because I think it's helpful because it's confusing to people uh, when we say two kingdoms, because it sounds like there are these two hermetically sealed uh, kingdoms, and, um, and I, I think it's a little harder to understand in a way. Uh, but what Calvin is, is saying, and in, this is from Institutes 3, 1915, so book three, uh, chapter 19, section 15, uh, Calvin uh, uh, says that uh, there is a twofold government or a twofold administration, a duplex, he says, duplex esse in homine regimen, a twofold regime, we could even say. Um, so there's one kingdom with two spheres. Is how, and so it's strictly speaking, right? This might maybe this will blow people's minds, but I, I'm not technically strictly speaking uh, a two kingdom guy. I'm a, I'm a I'm actually technically a, a one kingdom guy, and uh, uh, but there but there are two spheres, and it, and so I say to people, if you won't recognize the two spheres, right? People say, well, you're a, you're a radical two kingdom guy. And then I say, well, actually I'm a radical one kingdom guy and I recognize two spheres in that kingdom. And if you won't have that, then what, what are you going to do with Calvin? Um, and, um, and I can, I, I, honestly, I have a hard time getting people to give me a coherent response to that uh, because Calvin here in Institutes 3, 1915 distinguishes uh, he said there's, there's a twofold government, a twofold kingdom, a twofold regime, twofold administration. And he says, uh, one aspect is spiritual, whereby the conscience is instructed in piety and in reverencing God. The second is political, whereby man is educated for the, du the duties of humanity and citizenship that must be maintained among men. These are usually called the spiritual and the temporal uh, jurisdiction, not improper terms, by which is uh, meant uh, that the former sort of government pertains to the life of the soul, uh, while the latter has to do with concerns of this present life. Um, and he goes on to, uh, to distinguish and explain what he means. So the church is the institution that most clearly represents the spiritual kingdom, and the state most uh, expressly represents the, the political kingdom. And so I, I'm, I'm uh, using these categories, sacred and secular. The, the church represents the sacred, and the state represents uh, the, the secular. Um, so that's, that's where I get the, uh, um, th this uh, distinction uh, that's where I learned it. Luther talked about two kingdoms, and uh, and that's fine. Uh, there's uh, there's something to be said. Caspar Olivianus used that language in his, in a treatise that he published on the Apostles' Creed, a commentary on the Apostles' Creed in 1576. He starts off by talking about uh, the existence of two kingdoms, although in that case he's talking about two spiritual kingdoms: a kingdom of light and a kingdom of of darkness. Uh, is it related to our reading of redemptive history? In some ways, I think it is, but uh, I think it's um, it's driven uh, by our understanding of the way the world works under the providence of God. And to our, es and to our eschatology, to our eschatology, yes. But uh, we li we live in a in a kingdom, uh, a spiritual kingdom that's been inaugurated that hasn't been consummated, but the twofold kingdom has existed since uh, the fall. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's in that sense, it's it's to do with both eschatology and and redemptive history. Um, but it's it, uh, it it's the nature of existence after the fall uh, and uh, particularly the nature of existence between the ascension of Christ and his session, his ruling and uh, and his return. So we're living between the ascension and, and the return of Christ. And how do we live how do we conduct ourselves? We conduct ourselves by recognizing that we live in that God is sovereign over all these things. That He rules the secular in a uh, generally right, and He rules the the church and the redemptive specially, savingly, redemptively. And if we can make that distinction, then we have categories by which to analyze our lives. And, and secular doesn't mean not under God's sovereignty. People just assume, well, He said secular, that means God we're not obligated to serve God in the secular. That's not true. We are obligated to serve God in the secular. The moral law applies to all that we do, yeah. and, uh, and the Word of God applies to all that we do. But, but uh, generally, the rules under which we operate in the secular have to uh, come from nature, and those rules were instituted by God. And so we, we, we do our politics according to nature, just like we do our plumbing according to nature, right? There are two kinds of plumbers in the world those who understand uh, how uh, hydraulics work and physics work, and those who don't. You hire a plumber who thinks that water can go uphill, that is going to be an unsuccessful plumber, and your house is going to be a mess because he has not submitted to nature, right? Now, water can be forced uphill, right? You put in a sump pump for that. But if if you don't understand gravity, you're a poor plumber. And it's the same thing with politics. Right. If you think the state, the state can save men's souls, if you have a messianic pretension for the state, then you, you are a poor politician. You don't understand what the state can do. Um, the state can't do that. It doesn't, it doesn't have any, um, it, it, it's not its office, and it's, it's beyond its capability. Uh, that belongs to the kingdom of God to, uh, to affect men's souls. So the way uh, I've been understanding this uh, as the two kingdoms or the two spheres within the kingdom um, is that, well, the problem that a lot of Christians uh, would have is that I I believe that they're trying to preserve the world through the sacred uh, kingdom where God has already preserved the world through that Noahic covenant. Yes. Um, And so, would you agree to that? That would certainly be a conflict, and that uh, what God has already um, established through the Noahic covenant uh, and separated the, um, the purpose of the sacred, which is through the church, of uh, preaching the gospel and uh, for redemptive purposes. So, would that be that conflict that you're speaking of there? Real yeah. quick, real quick. So, we're talking about the Noahic covenant in reference to the common grace covenant yeah exactly right. so two uh, right. two things one i just had a question about this today on twitter and uh so i appreciate your, your point matt that uh, so the first covenant is in noah is a, an administration of the covenant of grace right noah found grace or favor in god's eyes and uh, he, he say he saves uh the church that then was right that tiny little church in the ark which was a type of christ so that's the redemptive covenant. But when you get to chapter 9, this is a distinct covenant, right? And so it, it, Genesis 9, 1 and following in the ESV says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
Well, this is a sort of reinstitution of the creation mandate, the creation pattern. So th this is not redemptive. This is nature. And so this gets me to my other point. By, so I'm going to give you another set of categories. Uh, and I'm sure you guys know this, but maybe not everyone knows this. There's another set of categories that's very helpful for analyzing our life in this world. Again, traditional Christian categories that go way back in the history of the church, uh, back probably to the fathers and certainly through the Middle Ages, implicitly in the fathers, explicitly in the Middle Ages, picked up in the Reformation. And then we lost, again, these are categories that we lost in the 20th century. It was, it was like a nuclear bomb went off in the early 20th century theologically. We lost a lot of our our categories, you know, covenant of works, covenant of redemption, um, sacred, secular, and here's another one, nature and grace. And so uh, we can assign things to creation, that's nature, we can assign things to redemption, that's grace. And here we're talking about uh, nature or creation. So I, I, lots of uh, Christians are, and I'm thinking of the outfit in, what are they, in Kentucky or Tennessee, I don't remember which, that where they built the ark, I think that's in Kentucky. Am I right? Yeah, I think now so. They're, now they're going to build the Tower of Babel. Is that, did I understand that correct? <laughs> um, I didn't know it, that. It looks impressive. If that's, if that's a real thing. I wasn't entirely sure when I saw it, whether it was, uh, this was a meme, a joke, or whether this is a real thing, but it looked genuine to me. So is that part of Kentucky 6,000 years old? I, I don't know. <laughs> so um, I think they already built the Tower of Babel called the Burj Khalifa or something like that. I don't, Never mind. I, don't, I don't know. So, um, uh, um, you know, I've, yeah, anyway, I forgot now where I was. So Sorry. I, Sorry. Um, there, uh, yeah. So we, all, well, the big point here is I want people to distinguish between, uh, oh, I know what I was going to say. Yeah. We want to distinguish between nature and, and uh, grace. When I talk about uh, creation, sometimes people think about the length of the creation days. That's what made me think of of the creation uh, park, the theme park, and, and all of that, people think, well, all the only thing they know about creation is that it it's, has to do with the length of the days, uh, you know. And um, traditionally, creation was a category of thought, and the reason that the early church talked about the days was to say to the Gnostics, no, uh, we're talking about creation, something that God did. He instituted a pattern that He instituted. Uh, and so they would go through the creation days, and they did that frequently to respond to the Gnostics, who were denying the reality of creation. Well, American evangelicals are, in my view, pretty heavily influenced, though they don't realize it, by a kind of Gnosticism. They don't really believe in physical created reality. They don't believe in that God uses sacraments, right, bread and wine to accomplish his purposes, or the spoken word, you know, the preached word to accomplish his purposes, they, they're, they think of the Christian life in sort of ethereal terms, uh, because they don't have any place for creation. When uh, Irenaeus, and, and I'm, so this is first semester for me as we're, as we're talking, and so I spent the semester reading the fathers again and talking about the fathers, so, so that, that's where all these references are coming from. When Irenaeus, uh, you know, he speaks about the sacraments and the goodness of creation, uh, uh, he, and he turns to the sacraments to illustrate that God used uh, bread and wine. He instituted bread and wine to uh, to communicate his grace to his people, and and he makes that argument against the Gnostics, who didn't believe in a physical reality or in that Jesus had a uh, has a true human nature. And so, early on in the church, we had to affirm the reality of creation as a category, and uh, grace is a distinct category. 
So these two categories are, are categories of thought and analysis that we've always had, and we lost it. And so we need to recover those categories so that when we look at Genesis 9, we see the reinstitution of the creational pattern after the flood. And you see that in, in verse 2, again, in 9-2. That's a reinstitution of the creational pattern. Uh, verse 3, every moving thing. That's, again, going back to reinstituting the creational pattern. But you shall not eat flesh with its life uh, in it, that is, its blood. And, verse, and that's verse 4. Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man... From his fellow man, I will require uh, a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And then finally, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So you, you have a reinstitution of the creational pattern uh, that goes you know, back to before the fall. And uh, you have sort of a new creation, in a sense. And you have the institution of a general natural law here that, again, is rooted in the law that God gave to Adam, that, that is a, a natural law. This is, again, a category that we've lost, uh, that every human being knows uh, the, the law of God in some. And so this is an application of, of law that the, the human, uh, human beings are image bearers, and uh, um, their life cannot be unjustly taken. And uh, and when it and when it is unjustly taken, there has to be a penalty. There has to be a payment. Um, so that's the creational pattern. And and so a lot of our life is actually conducted under that creational pattern, uh, not necessarily under under the redemptive. A lot of evangelicals don't have that distinction, and they think uh, every they think they need to, in a sense, sacralize everything to make it good, to make it clean, and they don't. Uh, one of the things that we learned in the Reformation is that creation is not evil. It's not wicked per se. It's fallen. It's corrupted. But creation as such is not evil. Amen. Uh, sex as such is not evil. And uh, uh, procreation as such is not evil. And uh, uh, work outside of the church is not evil. It's good. It's clean. It doesn't have to be sanctified. And, um, uh, and so we actually, one of the th ways that scholars talk about the Reformation is to call it a project of desacralization, that the medieval church had enchanted the world, made it all kind of magic, and made it all sacred. And the Reformation said, no, the world doesn't have to be sacred to be good. Um, the secular is good. Your secular vocation to be a shoemaker is a good vocation. Your secular vocation uh, to be a plumber is a, is a good vocation. Um, whatever your, your, your secular vocation as a magistrate is a good vocation. We said that against the Anabaptists who said, well, no, you Christians can't participate in civil life. You can't serve as a magistrate. Uh, you can't be a policeman because that's dirty. That's corrupting. And that was a holdover from the Middle Ages. And, and we rejected that. So that's why these categories are so helpful. Uh, and, and it gives us categories by which to think about Christ and culture, which is really what we're talking about, and, and then Christ and politics, or the church and politics, or Christians and politics. Um, Scott, real quick, also there's been a disturbing trend where there's been the confusion of the two spheres, especially um, by the, what you call the theo-recon movement, um, as we can see in uh, places like Moscow, Idaho. <laughs> Do you want to comment to that? 
Sure. So uh, that's shorthand for the theonomy and reconstruction movements. Uh, so Christian reconstruction is a movement that traces its roots back to the post-World War II era and, and is typically traced to um, an, an Armenian Christian fellow, Rusis Rushduni. So I don't know if um, Onig, if you know who Rusis Rushduni is. I have no relation. No, I, yeah, I understand. I, I, I understand that not all Armenians are related. But, uh, uh, Pretty close, though. Pretty close. But, but yeah, do you guys play, see the Dutch play Dutch bingo. You get two Dutchmen together and they start asking, you know, well, where are you from? Or, yeah, well, I'm from Linden, Washington. Well, do you know so-and-so? Oh, yeah, well, I know. I'm, and then you play bingo <laughs> until you know somebody. Right. Uh, do the Armenians play Armenians play Armenian bingo? Trade no, they names just, back and forth till you find no, somebody just, that you both know. No, they just go to Las Vegas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that helps me. Uh, anyway, so Rusis Rush Dooney uh, was a conservative, maybe even fundamentalist, mainline Presbyterian. I think his dad was a minister or was a, a missionary, and they worked among Native Americans on reservation and they, they became increasingly frustrated uh, with the sort of do-gooding uh, by American uh, political, cultural, theological liberals and, uh, and, and reacted to it. And uh, he became enamored, uh, Rusus Rushduni did, of Cornelius Van Til and uh, tried to apply what he was reading in Van Til and, and so sort of synthesized uh, that with a, a version of post-millennialism and uh, theorized uh, uh, that there, there was a coming uh, collapse of the West. And he, you know, he may be right about that in some ways. Um, at least it's more plausible now than it was even 10 years ago. And out of that collapse will arise um, a reconstructed Christian Republic. And here, this is where theonomy comes in, where then uh, the society is going to turn to the Christians for um, advice uh, for um, uh, influence and, and even uh, maybe to some degree control. And, and uh, we're going to govern society, or Christians are going to govern society in this reconstructed Christian republic according to the judicial laws. So in the Old Testament, traditionally going back to at least to Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century and explicitly and implicitly before that, the, the church has always distinguished between three kinds of laws in the Old Testament. Uh, the ceremonial, those are the religious laws, the Sabbath laws, hand-washing laws, uh, the, the, the Levitical laws, and, and, and of those sorts of laws, and the judicial laws, right, the, the laws about criminal punishment, um, you know, so judicial criminal law, just like we have, but the, the Israelite judicial laws, and the moral law. And we've always said that the moral law is the natural law. It's grounded in, in the nature of God. It's grounded in the nature of things, and it's permanent. But the judicial laws and the ceremonial laws were fulfilled on the cross by Christ, and they're no longer in effect. And so the Westminster Divines said uh, that the uh, judicial laws expired with, uh, uh, with the people, uh, the national people. So there's no more national people, uh, there are no more judicial laws and, um, and that's a pretty traditional Christian position. Anybody arguing for the reinstitution of the judicial laws has uh, uh, historically traditionally been known as a Judaizer, somebody who wants to go back to the Mosaic Old Testament. Specifically, right, the Old Covenant is the Mosaic 
covenant, right? Because those judicial laws and ceremonial laws didn't exist prior to Moses. Right? They weren't they weren't you know, a part of redemptive history. Abraham wasn't on the, under them, and Noah wasn't under them. So um, uh, the the that's the, um, the the genius, if you will, of the. Uh, reconstruction movement or theonomic reconstruction movement, or just for short, I call it the theo-recon movement, is that they can say to concerned and frightened American Christians, and particularly fundamentalists, who are, you know become dissatisfied with fundamentalism, the sort of don't touch, don't taste, uh, ascetic, um, almost Gnostic aspects of fundamentalism, when they come to reject that, um, so the theonomists hand them a beer and a cigar, and then they say, uh, but we, we can satisfy your, your lust for a detailed plan for life and control. And that uh, detailed plan is the 600, you know, the, judi the judicial laws under the 613 Mosaic laws, as the rabbis used to count them. So, uh, and that attracts fundamentalists. So they trade in their premillennial dispensational uh, eschatology and their fundamentalism, their don't drink, don't, don't dance, uh, don't smoke fundamentalism for a, a new kind of, of um, millennialism in which they're looking forward to a glorious age on the earth. It's still earthly. And so in a way, they're just trading up, in a sense, their premillennial eschatology with uh, Christ sitting on the throne and watching sacrifices for a thousand years. They're, they're, they trade that in for Christian domination of the earth. Um, leading up to the return of Christ. Uh, so it's now not a literal thousand years, but it's a literal domination by Christians of the earth, and, and that's attractive, and they have a very detailed plan. You can look at Rush Dooney's three volumes, uh, the Institutes of Biblical Law. It's like a Protestant Talmud, a Protestant commentary on the Torah, and, and uh, they will tell you what you should do with every part of your life um, you know, there are Reformed theologians who talk about theology as being the application of the Word of God to every area of life, and um, and so they some people are really attracted to this detailed control of their life, and and uh, you know should I what what are the obligations I have you know more you know from the moral law, and 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 so here you have this extensive case law basically, mm -hmm. um, in in a way it's brilliant, and then you have an eschatology that underlies it this uh, sort of optimistic post-millennial eschatology that is attractive to people with dispensational backgrounds because it says implicitly, well, when we're an oppressed people, then you turn the other cheek, as uh, one of their writers said, but when we're in charge, right, uh, we're going to be taking names and kicking you-know-whats. Um, so yep. it, uh, it, that's <laughs> basically a, a kind of dispensationalism because it says, well, you know, carrying people's mm -hmm. cloaks and walking with them for a mile and and all of that, that's for when you're oppressed, that, but that's for then, but not for when we're in charge. But remember, Jesus hasn't returned yet. So that's why I say it makes it quasi-dispensational. So that, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount is, maybe it's for now, uh, but, but it won't always be for now, mm -hmm. uh, uh, even before Jesus returns. And, uh, and that's attractive. That, that fulfills an itch. And it's kind of a Gnostic thing, because uh, and it fulfills that itch too, because it's a it's a it's like dispensationalism. It's got the secret charts in a sense. It's got the same kind of uh, a quality of hidden knowledge that not everybody knows, and that's one of the attractions of premillennial dispensationalism. Is it? It's a kind of gnostic secret that only the Illuminati know, and uh, so here the only the theo recons really understand what's going on, and um, and of course it's attractive because. 
uh, the bad people out there are bad and they're doing bad things and they're going to do bad things to us. So we're all going to pack up and move to Moscow. And uh, our bad man, he's not orange, but uh, he's de facto our, our bad orange man. He's going to defend us from all the bad pagans out there who are trying to do bad things to us. And uh, he's going to fight for us. We're going to build a Christian civilization in, uh, in Moscow, right? Take over Moscow, take over uh, the Pacific Northwest, uh, and, um, and we'll be ready after the collapse. And so uh, one of their uh, writers, <coughs> Gary North, uh, was sending out newsletters before Y2K. The end, this is yep. it. This is the collapse. And then out of the Y2K collapse is going to arise the, the new Christian Republic. So um, there are a cu couple of people wow. who have written on this. Uh, Mark McVicker did a book on Rush Dooney that's very well done. I don't remember the title, uh, but it was very helpful. And then uh, Crawford Gribben um, did a volume here not long ago on Rush Dooney and, uh, and particularly on the Pacific uh, Northwest, Crawford Gribben. There's a couple of volumes you can look at. But if you can, you go to the Heidel blog, Heidel blog, .net slash resources. There's a resource page on uh, the whole uh, theonomic reconstruction movement. Dr. Clark, what about those who say that, no, we're not reconstructionists. We just believe that the law of God still applies to today. Like, for instance, James well, who White. Who doesn't believe that? Right. I mean, but, but, so, but, that, but that's how they're trying to use this, this so language if, today as an excuse. So people say, you know, I'm a theonomist in that, you know, either you, you believe in theonomy or autonomy. Right. And, and at that level, we're, we're just playing games. So no, any Christian who says that the moral law does not govern the Christian, that person is an antinomian. So that, that's off the table. Anybody who says that the Ten Commandments are not for today, the moral law is not for today, uh, which is a equivalent, substantially equivalent to the natural law, anybody who denies those things is antinomian. So that, that right. view is off the table. But that's not, nobody is arguing about that. And so it's disingenuous to appeal to, uh, you know, theonomy in the broad sense. I mean, that was the sense in which Paul Tillich used the word. And nobody's right. talking about that. What's, at, what's in dispute is uh, whether the judicial laws of the, right, those, those judicial laws, part of the 613 commandments, whether they are still in effect and, and the reformed, Right, explicitly uh, deny that the the uh, the judicial laws are are no longer in effect. Uh, they uh, they expired. So so my point is is that from the modern day theonomists, it seems like there's revisionist language that makes them seem a little more attractive, right? Because the reconstruction part of it is left out. Well, well, and sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. The, the revision comes in in what they say about the um uh, about what the westminster standards say sorry it's chapter 20. so chapter now what am i saying yeah. oh here it is i'm sorry it's it's the night 19. i knew i was close um yeah um uh, chapter so 19 2. oh by the way just 19 1 god gave to adam as a uh a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal exact or entire exact and perpetual obedience promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it this law or this is just a freebie it's a whole other program 
But <laughs> this law, what law? The law God gave to Adam. What law is that? It's the moral law. That law continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness. It was delivered, and as such, delivered by God upon Mount Sinai. Anyway, so that's a whole other uh, program. Uh, section three, uh, beside this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical, meaning typological, ordinances and benefits, partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. Why? Because Christ is the Lamb of God. He fulfilled all those things. To yes. them also he gave as a body politic sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. And the theonomists have, I think, uh, ignorantly redefined general equity to mean whatever Rush Dooney says, whatever North says, whatever Damar says, whatever Bonson says. That's nonsense. General equity was 17th century, and even before that, way of saying natural law. And I've proved that. Just look at the Reformed Orthodox, search their works for general equity, and they will tell you. Perkins says it's the, 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 the natural law. Wallabia says it's the natural law. The, the, the judicial laws don't bind any state uh, any more than any other uh, law of any other foreign people, except as much as it reflects natural law, period. So anything that's distinctively mosaic is no longer enforced. The only thing that's enforced is natural law. That's what general equity means. So the whole theonomic project re relies on a series of sleights of hand. Uh, exegetical sleights of hand in Bonson's book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, relative to Matthew 5, um, sleights of hand in as much as they redefine general equity, sleights of hand in as much as they ignore the, the verb expired. So, you know, if somebody pushes me, I'll say I can defeat theonomy from a reformed point of view with one word, expired. Right. <laughs> he redefines uh, plurao. He's the only one who uses it in, in, a, in his way. Talks about yeah. fulfillment, Matthew five. Yeah, so uh, you, Greg Bonson is not a guy you want to follow in your exegetical right. method or conclusions. Um, I argued against his view years ago from Hebrews seven, seven eleven through fourteen. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says that when the priesthood changed, the law changed. The law rested; the Mosaic law rested on the priesthood, and we have a Melchizedekian priest. And that uh, creates a change in the law. We're not under the, the civil and the ceremonial laws anymore because the priesthood has changed. That whole epoch is done. And the theonomists don't get that. But so this is why, more broadly, this is why American evangelicals and fundamentalists are attracted to you know, the project of Christian reconstruction and theonomy because uh, they don't want to be marginalized. To be an American evangelical is to be, until very recently, very much a part of the American mainstream. And people are going through withdrawal. This is what's happening psychologically and emotionally. Right now in 2021, Christians are being pushed to the margins of society. And people are not prepared for that. Because American evangelicalism has been for 200 years the child of, and in some ways the parent of, right? So there's this reciprocal relation between American evangelicalism and American culture. And uh, so to the degree that uh, there is this integral reciprocal relation 
between um, American evangelicalism and American culture. And now suddenly uh, the umbilical cord's been cut and we're being pushed, we, they, are being pushed to the margins of society. People are reacting and some of them are fleeing to Moscow or, you know, whether figuratively or literally, sending their kids to Muscovite in inspired uh, classical schools. I'm a big fan of classical education, but as I, mm -hmm. you know, said the other day on the Heidelberg, you, you might want to take a look at your classical school and see who's writing the textbooks. Are you using textbooks promoting uh, Southern slavery as a benevolent institution? Are you using textbooks, that, uh, you know, that are published by people who, uh, you know, publish plagiarized books? Um, and, you know, uh, and have kids writing uh, exercises uh, as a, from the point of view of a slave about how benevolent Southern slavery was. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what, what are we doing here? So th this is what's going on. This is what's happening psychologically. I know this because I know of families who've packed up and left and moved to what is in effect uh, uh, becoming an elaborate sort of commune, not exactly a commune, but, but a, a new sort of Christian civilization. So it's interesting, you know, Rod Dreher, uh, you know, advocates the Benedict option, which is sort of withdrawal and the formation of communities. And, and uh, the transformationalists want to transform, uh, the, the reconstructionists are transformationalists. Uh, but in order to get to transformation, they're first practicing the Benedict option. And then from, the, from that, they hope to transform culture and society. And this is all just a promise to evangelicals that we're going to, we're going to get our place back. That's, that's the attraction. We're going to get our place back. We're going to fit and we're going to be part of the mainstream again. It, I mean, to me, it all sounds uh, like behavioral change because there's no core change. Only the, the spirit of God can do yep. uh, the real change. Um, it goes back. It reminds me of um, Michael Horton's book, uh, Crisis Christianity, where he states that uh, American Christianity is that moralistic therapeutic deism. Yeah where that improperly views uh, faith as uh, like a set of rules to be followed. Um, so it goes back to, I mean, he's right on the money there. Uh, exactly what you're describing here, uh, where if you, if you start um, mixing the two uh, kingdoms, if you will, I'll, I'll use two kingdoms, uh, then you, you start missing the purpose and point of what the calling is for the church, which is that redemptive uh, gospel proclamation. Well, I think you, I think that's right. And uh, one of the things I've noticed about, for example, the Theo Recon movement is they've tended to, tended to be not always, but most of the time, tended to be pretty inclusive as to what counts as orthodoxy, which is what you have to do when you get to Christendom. So Bob Godfrey, which is a lot of the project here, is to reconstruct. Christendom, where Christianity is given a privileged position in the culture, an influential position in the culture again. And uh, Godfrey's arguing that Christendom is dead. He, he, he marks the, the funeral, uh, you know, the death of Christendom as the Obergefeld, Obergefeld decision, um, was it Obergefeld v. Hodges, uh, 2015 in the Supreme Court. Uh, and be that as it may, uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, uh, post-Christendom, but under Christendom, there's always a sort of breadth as to what counts as orthodoxy. And, um, and so among the Theorecons, I've seen a pretty inclusive approach to what counts for theological orthodoxy. So when I've asked them, well, wh you know, what's your vision of the new Christendom? Who, who's going to decide orthodoxy? Um, and you know, for those, 
<laughs> for theocrats, and there are people who are genuine theocrats who think that the state ought to be enforcing religious orthodoxy now, they're not even waiting for the sort of millennial golden age. They're, uh, you know, an earthly golden age. They want it now. And I, then I, to them, I say, really, I'm in California. Do you want Gavin Newsom enforcing religious orthodoxy? Do you want, <laughs> did, did you want Donald Trump enforcing religious orthodoxy? You know, uh, he thought Paula White was fine. Um, yeah, I don't. Wow. Um, yeah. Do you, do you want Joe Biden, who's a who in an earlier age would be regarded, I think, as a I don't know if he'd be regarded as a lapsed Catholic, but uh, his relations to the church are complicated at best um, and, and would be the Roman church. So let's say he's a devout Romanist. Do you want him enforcing religious right. orthodoxy? And I you don't. Know, you know, Trump actually grew up under Norman Vincent Peale. Yes, that's right. Like among the places where he was catechized or where he had his religious instruction was the crystal or not the crystal cathedral, but the marble collegiate. Close church, enough. Which is the yeah the father of the crystal cathedral, and then uh, he was in a, a Presbyterian, a PCUSA congregation as well. So I don't know how. I don't get the sense. <laughs> I never had the sense that Trump was thoroughly, thoroughly catechized. Right. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, it it. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, so you can look at the Theo Recon movement over the last 40 years or so, and, and many of them supported, for example, Norman Shepard's redefinition of the doctrine of justification, oh. whereby you're justified by uh, 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 faith and works, or through faith and works, or through faithfulness. And uh, some of them, now, to, to their credit, there were theonomists who opposed that, who rejected that. But uh, some of the leading theonomists uh, were tolerant of it or advocated it. Uh, David Bonson, son of Greg Bonson, said his dad was a thoroughgoing uh, supporter of Shepard. And other people have mm -hmm. disagreed with that. But I thought David made a pretty good argument. And I know most of the theonomists really? I've known have been uh, uh, ardent supporters of Norman Shepard. Because, uh, in fact, the Federal Vision guys... Uh, I knew originally as theonomists. So uh, I don't know if it's still on the web in its original uh, form. There was a long, long blog post that I recommend by a former theonomist, and the title is Meet the Theonomists. Uh, I preserved it for archival purposes at rscottclark.org. So you should be able to find it there. I recommend Good. people read this article, Meet the Theonomists. And what's interesting about this is he wrote it long enough ago that the Federal Vision Movement was maybe just getting going or maybe didn't, didn't even exist yet under that name. And um, all the people that we know today as, as Federal Visionists, they were all theonomists. And so Federal Vision is the ecclesiastical arm of theonomy. Yep. And uh, Federal Vision says you get in by baptism, baptismal grace, and you stay in by cooperation with grace, which is essentially Romanist. It's yep. the very thing that we rejected in the Reformation, that very formulation. So uh, I think baked into it, with some exceptions, there's a whole uh, theonomic reconstructionist denomination. Um, and I don't want to say what it is because I don't want to get it wrong. It's uh, there's because there's a couple of groups with this, very similar names. So I don't want to misstate which one it is, but it, I think it's the one <coughs> headquartered in Atlanta. And uh, they've been very critical uh, of the federal vision. But for the most part, the Theo Recons have embraced the federal vision. And uh, in fact, it, it, that's sort of their program for the time being is the federal vision theology in by baptism, stay in by uh, cooperation with grace. 
So uh, uh, there's an inherent latitude, theological latitude in Christendom that I don't think historically did not serve us well. Abraham Kuyper said he rejected the state imposition of religious orthodoxy and he wanted Belgic Article 36 revised because he said it's never been good for orthodoxy to have a, a state church. Mm-hmm. And I, historically, I think uh, Kuyper is exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, so all this, all the glory age that these people are promising us, it's, uh, it's pie in the sky. Um, there's no historical evidence that's really going to happen. I can point you to uh, brief periods of time when the Orthodox flourished under a given magistrate, but never for very long. And, uh, and I, I think that's just the point. Let me ask you a question, Scott. Um, you know, there have been pastors who, like I said, who were not political before and who are political now, um, especially during COVID. You have some, I'm thinking of one person specifically, who was giving advice from the pulpit in regard to the vaccine. Um, and this to me was very bothersome. I don't care where you stand on the vaccine, whether you're pro or, yeah. or against. But I think this is completely improper. And I think it's a violation of your ministerial oath. You're not a physician. You're there to minister the word of God and to administer word and sacrament, correct? I, I agree. Yes. I mean, I have my own views and I, right. I have articulated them in public mm-hmm. um, as a citizen, right? Because we live in a twofold kingdom. Um, and, you know, as a minister, I have to walk a fine line, but from the pulpit in my office as pastor, uh, that stuff would be completely out of bounds. It's completely inappropriate. Nobody's coming to church to hear me opine on um, COVID policy or uh, civil liberties uh, or, or any of that. Um, I, when I'm standing in the pulpit, and, and in the old days, we used to do that in some places, we still do it in a robe to designate that I'm in my office. And so when I'm functioning as a pastor in my office, my uh, sphere of discourse is strictly limited. And if uh, guys can't live with that, there's a remedy for that. You can resign your office and, and run for office, right? I'm, mm-hmm. one of my, I have a lot of admiration for Abraham Kuyper, but one of the things for which I would criticize him is, I think he probably should have resigned his ministerial office. I don't know that he did. I could be wrong about that, but I don't think he did. And then he ran for parliament. And, and I think people are, uh, it's fine if you want to run for Congress, run for the state house, run for governor. Good for you. Go get involved. I'm not an Anabaptist. I'm not a separatist. Um, engage the culture. But let's be clear what we're doing then, right? Um, so we're, at, we're acting in the secular realm under nature, under God's general providence. And you, you give up your ministerial office to do that. So, right. so I, I really want the listener to hear me. I'm not calling for withdrawal from society. So opposing the transformational or the theonomic reconstructionist agenda doesn't mean withdrawal. It means engage, argue, but Very do good. it the right way. Don't mm-hmm. cheat. Right. So it's not the main mission of the church. It's not the mission of the church. If you want to be political on an individual level, great. Yeah. And you but can go ahead and church do as church as an institution. Exactly. So, so I, yeah. you know, when people say, well, uh, John the Baptist, um, you know, he criticized Herod. Okay. He's an old Testament prophet and that's what old Testament prophets did. Um, and he didn't whine, you know, when he got put in prison and got his head cut off. Um, so you're not an old Testament prophet. You're a new covenant pastor. And um, so fulfill your duty as a minister 
and leave the policy making to others, unless, as I say, of course, you want to resign and, and then participate in the policy making process uh, like everyone else. Great. Scott, before we head on out, um, can you give some book recommendations for our listening audience? Regarding this? This topic, yep. Well, I, I, I've been helped by Dave Vendronin's work. Uh, Living in God's Two Kingdoms, I think, is a helpful starter. It's a popular, accessible work, and he's done uh, three volumes, and I think there's a fourth coming. I don't know if they're all related, but I know three volumes are, are more or less related on um, you know, natural law, two kingdoms, <coughs> excuse me, and, um, and that sort of stuff. Again, there's lots of resources on the Heidel blog. There's a resource page on natural law and on the twofold kingdom. Um, and um, so that's, and there are, there, are, uh, there are bibliographies there on natural law and, um, and that sort of stuff. So that, that will get you started. Um, and as I say, uh, I found uh, uh, McVicker's book helpful and uh, Crawford Gribbons. And there's another one that I, I'm, it's not coming to me on the, on the Theo recon movement. So there is a growing body of literature, but those two are pretty substantial volumes and, and they will get you going. Um, Daryl Hart's A Secular Faith was a big influence on me. And in, in oh, wow. uh, there's a, uh, that I think is a, in, in some ways was a turning point in my thinking. He helped clarify a bunch of things. He's the guy who really showed me the value of making the sacred secular distinction. He quotes Bernard Lewis, who says that the, it was the Christians who invented the sacred secular distinction. You know, there's no uh, sacred secular distinction or church mosque distinction in Islam. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was the Christians who, who gave us that. And uh, so this is an authentic traditional Christian distinction that we need to recover. So A Secular Faith by D.G. Hart, that uh, is a valuable book, and Great. I recommend that. Fantastic. Okay, so, Scott, uh, can you reiterate or tell the uh, audience again about your website? Heidelblog.net, H-E-I-D-E-L-B-L-O-G.net. And there you will find all kinds of things. A cornucopia of resources as to <laughs> as to being reformed, and just go to the resource page, and uh, it's it's organized for you uh, alphabetically, and there are introductory resources. <clears throat> I've been lately uh, publishing articles by people who are uh, becoming reformed. It's called "Discovering the Reformed Confession," and um, and then if you already are reformed, uh, then you might be interested in recovering the Reformed Confession. So everything you want to know about being uh, reformed, reformed theology, piety, and practice. It's uh, it's right there, heidelblog.net. That that's great. We highly recommend your blog and all of your books, of course. And um, Onig, where can we be reached? Uh, we can be reached at info at bttrmin.org or back to the reformation at gmail.com. Our podcast is on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and um, we're putting them up on YouTube as well. Great. Dr. Clark, thank you for coming back again. It was awesome having you. Yes, thank you, Dr. Clark. You bet, guys. And you have been listening to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast, and we hope you join us again next time. See you.